The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tivaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community. We're now one of the largest providers of cancer support in the U.S. and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Now, earlier this year, we took a really deep look at President Obama's Affordable Care Act and the legal challenges to it that were being presented before the Supreme Court. So today, we are going to talk about the court's ruling and the impact it will have. Uh, at the cancer support community, we really believe that people are, are empowered by knowledge and strengthened by action and sustained by community. And uh, I know this is a, a complex and intimidating subject, even for the experts, um, but it is a vitally important one. So we're going to tackle this together head on. We're going to take it one step at a time. And we have two fantastic experts uh, today to uh, help us. They, uh, uh, Peter Thomas and Karen, Karen Davenport have been on the show before and did an unbelievable job walking us through the issues uh, that were before the Supreme Court. So I know at the end of the hour we'll have a real grasp uh, on the situation. Peter Thomas is a principal of Powers, Piles, Sutter, and Burville, a Washington, D.C. firm that focuses on health care, education, and the law of tax-exempt organizations. Peter has a federal law and legislative practice in the areas of health care and disability policy, Medicare coverage and reimbursement policy, medical rehabilitation services, devices and research, and vocational and community services and support. Welcome back, Peter. Thank you so much. And Karen Davenport recently assumed the position of Director of Health Policy at the National Women's Law Center. Congratulations, uh, Karen. Sounds like a, a wonderful role. Previously, Karen served uh, as a Research Project Director and Lecturer at the Department of Health Policy at George Washington University. Karen also directed health policy research and advocacy with a particular focus on health system reform at the Center for American Progress. Her extensive uh, experience includes serving as Washington Director for the Medicare Rights Center, serving as Senior Program Officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and also working as a legislative assistant to Senator Bob Kerry, where she was responsible for staffing the Senator's work on Medicare, Medicaid, public health, welfare, and social issues. Thanks for coming back, Karen. Thank you, Kim. So during the show, we're, we're, we're going to look at specific provisions of the Act, but let's take a moment to think about what is at stake here, because sometimes the numbers are so large they become incomprehensible to us. Um, you know, recently the Washington Post came up with a very clever chart that gives us some perspective. There are 50.7 million uninsured people in the U.S., so 50.7 million. That is equal to the combined population of 25 states in the U.S., and I'm not going to list them all. It's a pretty long list. It's equal to the number of people who voted for George W. Bush for president in 2000. It's equal to the number of people who died from 1918 to 1919 during the Spanish influenza pandemic. And these 50 million are just one group that will be impacted by the ruling. Uh, just a couple of other quick statistics before we get started. There are 29 million underinsured adults in the U.S., we know that there are 12 million cancer survivors, and another 1.5 million will be diagnosed this year. And we also know that with the aging of 76 million baby boomers, that number will increase dramatically in the coming years. And, and lastly, it has been reported that medical bills cause nearly 60% of all personal bankruptcies in the United States. So there's a lot at stake for a lot of people in this conversation. And, 
Uh, Karen and Peter, I'm sure that on the day of the ruling, your offices were just like ours. We were all kind of glued to the Internet, waiting anxiously to find out if the act was going to be upheld, if it was going to be struck down or something in between time sort of seemed to stand still and then accelerate at the speed of light as everybody has been sort of scrambling to define, read, interpret the ruling. Um, and we appreciate you helping us do that a little bit today. Um, Karen, I'm going to start with you. Um, looked at in its entirety, does the Affordable Care Act actually address the health care needs of all U.S. citizens? Is it truly a comprehensive uh, uh, bill and coverage, or can we expect another reform effort in 5, 10, 15 years? What does this look like here? But to answer your questions, I would say yes and yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I said that if you look at the Affordable Care Act, it's really working to make sure that the coverage people have covers their needs. Um, you know, it defines the kind of essential health coverage that everybody should have, whether through their employer or another way. Um, and it works to make that coverage affordable and accessible to everybody by doing health insurance market reforms and providing subsidies to individuals and small businesses and expanding Medicaid. So in that sense, I think it really is comprehensive. It also takes on, um, you know, the escalation of health care costs. But on the other hand, I think health reform is really always a work in progress, um, you know, the, partly because as, you know, science progresses and we can do different things and have different treatments. Um, and just, you know, there's changes in our population and our economy. So I think it is a, a uh, full employment effort for, for people like Peter and me and lots of, of other folks who are interested in health policy. But, you know, it really does need to evolve over time. Yeah. Peter, we're going to start to, uh, uh, you know, break down the the, uh, the, the results of this decision, um, you know, throughout the conversation today. But given that most of the act was upheld, what population group or groups are going to benefit the most from this? Well, there's several. Um, the first, of course, that comes to mind is the uninsured, uh, because those are the people uh, to whom this, the large bulk of this law is addressed, and trying to get additional insurance options on the table for people who can't otherwise access insurance or access medical care, coverage for medical care for one reason or another, whether it's low income, whether it's because they've got pre-existing conditions or some kind of a health a condition or a disability or disease or disorder that prevents them from being able to purchase private coverage in the open market. Um, but so, so by by far, the number one category that is assisted by this is uninsured Americans. But I think there's also a very strong case to make that all Americans um, benefit from this because of something you said in your introduction, and that is this large number of underinsured people, people that just don't have coverage that meets their needs or that will meet their needs when they really need it. Um, I'd also say that uh, a key group that is assisted by this bill is, uh, I'd say, people with disabilities and chronic conditions. Anyone with pretty significant um, health care expenses, anyone who has a fairly robust claims experience, anyone with uh, a chronic condition or, you know, a, a cancer, for instance, um, will clearly benefit from this law because their premiums can no longer be uh, based on on their medical history, they can the you know, insurance companies can no longer rate their premiums, what they pay for insurance, based on their health status, and that uh, is a tremendous advance uh, in the U.S. Uh, insurance system for healthcare. You know, Peter. Um, you know, as I said, we're going to break the bill down a little bit, but um, but continuing in that vein, which group is the most impacted? by the court's ruling that states have the choice of whether or not to expand their Medicaid programs. Can, um, can, we, can we talk about that part of the decision a little bit as, since we're talking about how this is affecting specific populations? Well, sure, because that is the crux of the decision. The fact is that the, the court did uphold the individual mandate that, that um, essentially will permit the private insurance reforms to go forward pretty much full steam ahead. But the Supreme Court actually held in unconstitutional the expansion of Medicaid the way that the, that the statute uh, and the way that Congress chose to do it. <clears throat> However, they said uh, one way to completely eliminate the unconstitutional 
um, problem is for states to simply have a choice in whether they want to expand their Medicaid programs to what amounts to 133% of the federal poverty level. And if states are given that choice and they voluntarily decide to go ahead and expand their Medicaid populations to that point, then there's no constitutional problem. And if they choose not to expand it, then they don't get the federal money that would flow to them, uh, a lot of money that would flow to them if they go ahead and expand it. So the one key factor there is, you know, the law said that if the state doesn't expand its Medicaid population, that it will lose all Medicaid funding, everything that it's currently getting in addition to the expansion of funds. The Supreme Court said that goes too far. That's coercion on the states, and the federal government can't do that. As long as the state can decide for itself whether to expand or not, then the law stands. Okay. Okay. And just, uh, uh, Karen, before we go to our first break here, we've got a couple minutes, but can you just touch on, on, on this idea that, that, um, that this is considered, that the reason it was upheld is because it's considered um, a tax? And, and, and just a little bit about the, maybe the technicality of that and, and how that was uh, a, a part of the decision? Well, sure. The, um, and Peter can explain the, the issues around the Commerce Clause probably better than I can. But the people who do not hold health insurance under the law um, end up paying a penalty. And that is called the, the individual mandate. The one of the key questions in the case was whether uh, the government can impose that kind of requirement on individuals. And the way the court decided on this was it construed the penalty as a tax, which makes a lot of sense. It's collected by the IRS um, and, you know, pretty much functions as a, as a tax and um, said that, well, they didn't buy the arguments that the government could do this under the powers of regulating interstate commerce, that um, Congress has taxing power as well, and that the penalty was constitutional um, as, you know, when it's considered as a tax. And so the individual mandate um, ended up being upheld under those grounds. And the so, interesting thing... Yeah, uh, Peter, please, the, anything surprising about that? Sure. The interesting thing was that Justice Roberts, who is the uh, chief justice of the court uh, and generally known as a very strong conservative voice on the court, joined the four liberal justices uh, in, in rendering that decision and upheld the decision based on the taxing clause. Uh, that is very significant in, in a number of respects. It obviously upholds the law as constitutional, but it also sends a signal that um, you know, maybe this was this decision was decided uh, not so politically as most people had feared it would be. Um, I, I would also say that in in making the decision that the case was not unconstitutional based on the Commerce Clause, kind of gets technical. But essentially, what what Chief Justice Roberts did was he constrained the reach of the federal government to regulate individuals' behavior by making the decision that he made. And so, in some respects, this was a, a real benefit or a real victory for conservatives as well. So that's a, it's an interesting perspective, what you're saying. So in, in essence, even though the perspective was that, you know, he did, he did not uh, align, you know, with Republican thinking, on this this voting, his position and vote did act. It does actually reinforce more conservative or Republican principles. Is that what you're saying? Uh, there's no doubt about it, and I think that that after the initial sting of the ultimate holding, um, mm-hmm. uh, it's clear that the conservative community has recognized uh, this kind of silver lining mm-hmm. in the, in the opinion itself. Interesting, interesting. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We are talking about the Supreme Court ruling on the Affordable Care Act. We were all sort of waiting with bated breath, and now we want to start to dive into the details as we talk about implementation. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene and Azi. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today I'm joined by Karen Davenport, Director of Health Policy uh, at the National Women's Law Center, and Peter Thomas, a principal at Powers, Pyle, Sutter, and Burville, a Washington, D.C. firm that focuses on health care, education, and the law of tax-exempt organizations. We're talking today about the Supreme Court's ruling on President Obama's Affordable Care Act, sometimes referred to as Obamacare. We're going to keep peeling back the layers uh, and, and together understand the court's ruling and its impact on how we access and pay for health care in America. Karen and Peter are going to break it down for us just a little bit more uh, and, and, and shed some further light on what's going on and really what we need to know. Um, Peter, can you walk us through the key provisions that have been upheld, specifying which are effective immediately and which we'll have to wait for? I think this is an important conversation. Well, uh, uh, by and large, the vast bulk of the law has been upheld. So in 2014, January of 2014, states um, are supposed to have state exchanges up and running so that individuals and small businesses can purchase uh, insurance uh, at these state-based exchanges, which are really nothing more than kind of a marketplace for where private insurance plans compete against each other based on a whole new set of rules of insurance, and individuals and small businesses can purchase from them. And it's an opportunity for uh, small businesses and, and individuals to get the, the same buying power that large employers currently get when they pool all their employees together. That's the whole theory behind the law. It's designed to use the existing private insurance market and not replace it with a government-run system, but instead allow those private plans to compete to uh to for individuals and small businesses and to to again function under a whole new set of rules so for instance very briefly you can't discriminate based on health status you can't rate premiums based on your claims experience or your medical conditions uh you can't uh, uh prohibit lifetime uh, maximum lifetime maximums are no longer permissible annual maximums and benefits will also be no longer permissible in 2014 
Um, there's all kinds of community rating uh, provisions and risk adjustment. It gets quite technical, but the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is the rules are completely rewritten on private insurance, and that's what those exchanges do. And that will go into effect January 2014, unless, of course, the election um, is uh, not one, not you know, unless President Obama is not reelected. In that case, I think all bets are off. But that's the majority, That's the biggest thing that goes into effect in 2014. The same thing occurs under Medicaid. States will um, will have to be covering and expanding their Medicaid populations January of 2014. And between those two types of expansion, Medicaid and private insurance with federal subsidies, uh, the law is designed to cover a new about 30 to 32 million new people. Uh, so it's a huge expansion in coverage. Now, Peter, what's to um, what's to stop an employer from saying to their employees, "Well, now you can get affordable coverage, so we're not going to provide health care for you anymore as an employer, or maybe we'll give you a stipend to go out and buy your own health care." You know, is the health care you can get through an employer plan going to be better than the exchanges, or what's to prevent an employer from doing that? Well, I mean, there's a whole host of provisions around this. Let me try to break it down. First off, for large employers, large employers. Uh, can can be grandfathered, and so whatever they're currently providing to their employees, that can be grandfathered in, and as long as they don't materially change their health plan, they can continue that grandfathered status. So they're not even affected by the law, at least until 2019 when things change. Um, in terms of the you know, access to the the um, the, uh, the state uh, insurance pools or the uh, excuse me the the exchanges, uh, those things will go effective. And ultimately, businesses are not mandated to provide insurance. That's right. there's not an, ins- an employer mandate under the law. But if they don't provide insurance and they're greater than 50 employees, and it could be over 100 employees, depends on. Uh, you know, there's a choice that a state can make, um, and they're not providing insurance, they can be penalized. Even if they are providing insurance to their employees, if it's not, quote-unquote, affordable, and there's some definitions in the law about what that means, then the employee, then the employer can also be penalized up to $3,000 per, per employee who goes out into the exchange and actually gets a federal subsidy to purchase insurance for themselves. And if the employer is in that position, those are the the penalties that they'll have to uh, that they'll have to pay to the um, state or federal government in order to um, you know if they're again if they're not providing insurance. So there are certain financial disincentives uh, to no longer providing insurance, mm-hmm. but there is not a mandate that employers provide health care coverage. And empl- and uh, employers under fifty employees. Uh, and those employers do not have to provide coverage. Now, of course, uh, providing insurance in this day and age is kind of a, an employee benefit. Many employees kind of rely on that, and they make their employment decisions based on whether their employer provides that benefit. So I don't think that um, it's going to materially change that scenario, but I do expect a lot of those smaller employers who um, are not obligated to provide insurance nor pay penalties those individuals can now have an option if their employer doesn't provide coverage. They have an option to go to the exchange and to purchase private insurance off of this new insurance exchange and get the same buying power that that uh, employer uh, purchasers of health care receive. Okay. And, and okay. this is Karen. I would just add uh, for small employers, um, they, as Peter mentioned, they aren't required to provide insurance, but there is some help in terms of in the Affordable Care Act. They can get, um, they have a small workforce and particularly a low wage workforce. They can get um, subsidies that will help them buy coverage for their employees, and then they are also able to access the exchange to purchase coverage for their employees as a whole as well. So they're not required to do it, but um, the law does try to make it a little easier for them to do it. Interesting, interesting. Um, Karen, uh, you know, obviously uh, we have a lot of uh, cancer survivors and patients and family members who listen to our show. I want to just get into um, some of the provisions that are, you know, likely to have the greatest impact on people facing a a cancer diagnosis. Obviously one of those is an end 
to lifetime limits. Um, uh, and we know that end to lifetime limits on coverage, it's crucially important to the cancer community. And in a survey, uh, 10% of cancer patients said that they hit their lifetime limit and that their insurers would not pay for further medical care. I mean, that's a, that's a crisis. Um, so when you read past the headline, it actually states that insurers can no longer limit how much they pay for these essential medical services over a person's lifetime. So can you, can you help us drill down? What are, what are these essential services? Who decides what to include on the list? And is it true that these lifetime limits are going, actually going away? Um, so lifetime limits have actually already gone away, um, which is important for people to know. That was one of the pieces of the law that implemented about six months after it was enacted, so back in the fall of 2010. Um, and the... In, in terms of exactly what are the essential health benefits for which there's um, no longer a lifetime limit, that's a little bit of a tricky question to answer right now um, because the, they're in the process of being defined. That HHS has given um, some, not really official guidance, but some a framework to the states and then um, the states are working to identify exactly what those essential health benefits are that um, plans within their states have to provide. So it's hard to say exactly what they are, but I think that it's important for people to know the law lays out different categories that have to be included in essential health benefits. So that obviously includes things like um, hospitalization and doctor services and other outpatient treatment and um, prescription drugs and, and stuff like that. And I think that um, for people who have cancer, what they can anticipate is that the components of their treatment plan are most likely going to be um, falling within those definitions of essential health benefits. So their health plan won't be able to put a dollar limit on the benefits that they um, that are covered by their plan in those essential health benefit categories, and that should cover, you know, the, the parts of their treatment plan. Um, this little story is not related to the cancer, but a friend of mine who had a, a child who was born with a congenital heart defect um, had a $2 million lifetime limit uh, in her insurance policy, and her little girl was about halfway through that lifetime limit before she was two years old. And um, she is, you know, sort of one of my poster kids in terms of who benefits from the Affordable Care Act because now she doesn't need to worry that, you know, the next two big surgeries that she needs, that the, that'll cause her to, to hit a limit and no longer mm. get benefits. Mm. So it's a huge benefit to people with, with real serious illness. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I think I may have suggested, um, maybe with loose language, that lifetime limits went into effect in 2014. And Karen's absolutely right; they're prohibited now. But there's also annual limits that insurance companies will often impose, mm -hmm. and uh, those are being scaled down and then completely eliminated in 2014. So that's what I meant when I said that. Good, good. Thanks for the clarification, Peter. And as we um, we have a couple minutes till the break here, Peter, but other provisions um, or things that our listeners need to know that will have, a, in particular, an impact on people facing a cancer diagnosis? Well, I, I wanted to uh, pick up where Karen left off on the essential benefits package because in addition to the benefits that she mentioned, uh, the, the law specifically requires rehabilitation benefits that uh, must be covered, mm -hmm. mental health care, behavioral health care, uh, chronic disease management. Those are all um, benefits that I would think would be very suited and very uh, relevant to a cancer population and a survivor population to get back uh, to the life that you want to lead. And so all of those benefits are uh, in the statute, must be provided under the essential health benefits package um, by the state plans and by the federally facilitated exchange as well. When it, we're in a state where that does not go forward and create their own exchange, the federal government must come in and ultimately provide that network or provide that that exchange. And so, even, you know, if you're in a state where the governor refuses to implement a, a state-based exchange, those residents still will have access to this kind of marketplace for insurance that we spoke about earlier. And Peter, just say again. So, who has defined, who has defined um, and decided what those essential benefits are? I, I, I mean, is it in? Is it actually specified in the law, or is it? Are, are there groups now breaking that down? 
Well, there are 10 categories that are listed in the law itself, but that's mm-hmm. not anywhere near um, the level of detail that's required. Right. The Department of Health and Human Services has put out some guidance. They're expected to issue a proposed and final regulation on this, but they really, in the interim, in the, in the meantime, they've really kicked a lot of this to the state level. So state legislatures and governors across the, the country are grappling with exactly what should be included in their mm-hmm. state's essential health benefits package. Okay. This is, uh, frankly speaking about cancer, we're talking today about the Supreme Court ruling um, on the Affordable Care Act. We're really trying to drill down and understand uh, the impact for all Americans, uh, in particular the impact on cancer patients um, and, and their families. We're going to take a quick break here um, in a minute. When I come back, I'm going to ask Karen and Peter to explain some of the technical terms that uh, keep popping up in the news and uh, uh, and causing some confusion. We're going to come back and do a little uh, a little healthcare dictionary lightning round <laughs> with you guys to try to break down some of these definitions uh, for those who are listening today to uh, to help us further understand this. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. Again, we're breaking down the Supreme Court ruling on the Affordable Care Act. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We're going to be right back. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities, Frankly Speaking About Cancer Series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Genentech and Morphotech. I'm Kim Thibaldeau. Today I am joined by two wonderful guests, Karen Davenport, Director of Health Policy at the National Women's Law Center, and Peter Thomas, a principal at Powers, Piles, Sutter, and Verville, a Washington, D.C. firm that focuses on health care, education, and the law of tax-exempt organizations. We're talking about the Supreme Court ruling on President Obama's Affordable Care Act. Um, uh, I, I don't want to 
to, I don't want this to sound like a game show here, but <laughs> we want to get into a lightning round. Um, several terms that keep coming up, I know that are causing some confusion. Love for you guys to help us understand them and break them down. Tell us what we need to know about them. And if there are terms that we're missing that we need to know and understand for you to help us dive in there um, as well. So, Karen, let's again start with some basics here. We, we're hearing about these um, health insurance exchanges. Who can use them and how do they work? So we've heard some folks comparing them to sort of getting car insurance premiums and quotes online. Um, uh, that, that you know, that's an analogy that, that, that keeps coming up. But 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 could that be right? Is that the kind of thing that we're looking at? What will these exchanges look like, and how will people be able to sort of shop in these uh, marketplaces to buy health care? Um, sure. So the health insurance exchanges that are in the law are modeled on um, the program in Massachusetts that is called the Connector, um, and it is. Uh, and the way I think about it is it's a reformed marketplace. It has all of those um, consumer protections and insurance reforms that Peter was talking about in an earlier um, part of our conversation. And health plans um, that are interested in selling uh, a product in the exchange, they contract with the exchange to do that. If you are an individual who is looking for coverage on your own or a small business who is looking to buy coverage for your employees, you can um, go onto the exchange website. And so, you know, uh, one of the analogies that's often used is sort of Travelocity, and that's not a bad metaphor, I think, um, mm-hmm. to, you know, Put in kind of what your specifics are and to look at what kinds of plans are available and what different uh, cost-sharing designs they might have, for example, um, and, you know, sort of work out what's best for you. The law has some important requirements about what kind of information people need to be able to get and to look at in terms of predicting what their um, out-of-pocket costs might end up being under different plan designs and stuff, too. So the idea is that you're able to do an apples-to-apples comparison of all the different health plans that are offered in your area. Um, as I think Peter mentioned earlier, that while the law kind of envisions them to be run by the states, it also has it had a backup plan that um, if states chose not to operate in exchange themselves, that the federal government could come up behind them and, and operate that in their stead. And it looks like, you know, certainly in some states that will end up happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and states can... Um, you know, sort of define different regions, and and if you're a big state like California, you might have a couple of different exchanges running rather than have one for the entire state. Uh, kind of depends on the market place that you have. But anyway, so if you are, um, you know, don't get health insurance through your employer and are looking to buy it on your own, it's a place to go. And if you are a small business, you can go through there too, and people will be able to work um, in the ways that they've gotten insurance. All you know. Traditionally, also, if they've done so through an insurance agent or a broker, they should be able to go through that agent or broker still, but be able to see the whole range of options that are available to them. Mm-hmm. Karen, is this is, is are the insurance companies happy about this? I mean, this you know any what, what sector would not welcome thirty to thirty five million new customers in the marketplace to fight over? Um, uh, how are the insurance companies feeling about this? Um, you know, I can't really speak for the insurance industry, but I, overall, they've you know supported this legislation. I think what they were most concerned about in terms of. Um, going forward was what the Supreme Court would decide about the individual mandate. And they were very worried that that market might fall apart if you could wait to buy coverage until you were really sick. And since the individual mandate was upheld, I think that, um, you know, they feel like the all of the, the pieces interlock strongly. Um, so, you know, certainly it's going to deliver a lot of, of newly covered people to them, um, not just through these exchanges, but also through the Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, plans certainly anticipate that states will look to contract with health plans to take care of lots of those folks, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to watch the, the, the stock market. Maybe I should be investing in some uh, some health insurance stock uh, right about now. Uh, I, I think some of them did pretty well right after the decision. <laughs> um, Peter, we, we, we've uh, seen some doctors interviewed talking about something called accountable care organizations and the formation of these ACOs, as they're referred to around the country. What exactly um, is an ACO? Why, why is it important? Why are some hospitals? and other communities making this change? 
Well, let me just give a couple little background points. First off, the American healthcare system is very fragmented. You've got a major hospital, you've got different doctors groups, you've got all kinds of outpatient therapy organizations, you've got, you know, diagnostic organizations and ambulatory surgical centers and all these different providers across the community. And they're very seldom organized or integrated in a way to provide what the patient needs in the most efficient way at the least cost and still have a really good outcome in the end. And so what you wind up having is a lot of duplication of resources, a lot of uh, unnecessary costs, and sometimes not very good outcomes as a result. What accountable care organizations are designed to do is to align the incentives, the financial incentives in particular, so that doctors work much more closely with hospitals, which work much more closely with other kinds of healthcare providers like nursing homes and, you know, diagnostic imaging centers and all kinds of uh, uh, providers to really provide what the patient needs when they need it. And so let me just give you a quick example. Right now, we, we, the, this country basically pays for volume. When, a, when you, you know, you should go in and see a doctor, you go, in, go into a hospital and, and have a hospital stay. The, if you're on Medicare, Medicare will pay that hospital or doctor a certain amount. Um, you know, in a hospital payment, it's basically one amount based on that episode of care. And so there's an incentive for the hospital to get, to get you out uh, of the hospital as soon as possible. But maybe they send you out too early and you're re-admitted to that hospital two weeks later. Well, guess what? The hospital gets paid again. So there's not a real incentive in place to prevent volume of service, just, you know, that you want to, you know, I've got a problem. You call your doctor. The doctor says, come in. I need to see you. Well, what about a system where you had incentives for that doctor to call the patient or email the patient and answer their question and give them what they need to not have to come into the doctor's office or not have to be hospitalized when when it's maybe unnecessary to do that. So accountable care organizations really seek to integrate all these different providers, get them on the same page, on the same team, and actually reward them financially if they're able to save money from what otherwise would have been spent if they were not integrated. And it's a complex formula, but basically they share in some of the savings that achieve, that's achieved through that better system of care. Now, in, in a sense, this is theory because there's only been, you know, there's some very integrated providers across the country, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but, um, you know, they've experimented with this program, and, and it hasn't had exceptional outcomes. They, they, it's not as though this is a proven, uh, you know, technique uh, and design, but they're moving forward with it. I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation over the next several years, and they will clearly, this will lead to a very significant integration of the healthcare system across the country in many different markets, and in, in that way, I think you'll, you'll, the goal is to lessen cost and improve quality. So, Peter, I don't mean to sound cynical, but isn't this exactly what the HMOs were designed to do? Yeah, this has happened a couple of times. Back in the mm-hmm. 1990s and the 70s and 80s, the HMOs, and they kind of apexed in the 90s. And then, of course, mm-hmm. in the 90s, there were these things called integrated delivery networks, which is mm-hmm. very similar to what I just described. What, what, what's different about this is the, is the sharing of savings, this financial incentive that mm-hmm. providers in this network will share so that when the doctor is home, you know, ready to turn in and go to bed and gets the phone call from their service that says your patient, uh, you know, is in crisis and needs either to speak with you, uh, you know, they say typically now, nothing against doctors, they say typically now, well, admit them. Send them to the hospital. Right, I'll see right. them tomorrow morning. Right, now right. they might get on the phone and say, "What's the problem? What can mm-hmm. I help you with? Can I mm-hmm. can I keep you out of the hospital?" Mm-hmm. That's because it's in their financial interest to do so. Got it. Got so it. that's got kind it. of the theory. So, Karen, we've only got a couple quick minutes till the break here, but we know that many people have gone without insurance because it's been beyond their financial reach. But what can you tell us about the the tax or the penalty or uh, that has to be paid if you don't sign up for insurance, if you don't um, end up buying insurance? Do we have any idea what these numbers will look like for folks? Uh, well, yes, they're laid out in the law, in fact. 
Um, so it phases in. So it starts in 2014 at a pretty small um, level at about $100 for an individual and will um, phase up to over a few years to about $700 for an individual or $2,100 for a family or 2.5% of family income. So, and it's the greater of those. So if you're making your family income is about $80,000, that's sort of the tipping point. And then the, the proportion of your income is is the um, penalty that will be assessed. Um, but that, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that that is balanced with the Affordable Care Act provides uh, refundable tax credits to people to help them pay for um, health insurance that they're buying in the exchange. So, you know, while there is a penalty if you don't have coverage, there is a uh, help <laughs> to make sure that you can get coverage. And if um, coverage, in fact, is out of reach for you financially, whether that means that you're somebody who's experiencing a temporary hardship um, or you just have low income or you can't find coverage that is going to cost you less than 8% of your family income, then the, um, you can get an exemption from that penalty as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think people really, if they think about it, it's, you know, it is there, but it's probably more important to think of, you know, what kind of help can I get paying for health insurance um, mm-hmm. and then and then work from there. And just quickly, Karen, could there be people who don't qualify for the exchanges and who don't qualify for Medicaid? Um, yes. Well, most notably, there will be people who are undocumented immigrants won't um, qualify, won't be able to purchase coverage through the exchange and also won't qualify for the Medicaid program. Um, and you know, they are they would not be hit by the penalty. They are exempted mm-hmm. from that, but they mm-hmm. also won't get any help with paying for health And do we know insurance. how many people that is approximately in the U.S.? Um, not off the top of my head. Okay. Somewhere in the 11 million area, but let me, just, let me just mention one other group. Um, yeah, quickly, Peter. And that is the group uh, of people who are less than 100% of the federal poverty level who would mm-hmm. otherwise qualify for the expanded Medicaid population but live in a state that decides not to expand that, their that, Medicaid that's program. That's okay. Right. Yeah. Those okay. folks will no longer have access to Medicaid, and there's a real yeah. conundrum about that group. So, now, Peter, I'm gonna, we're going to take yeah. just a quick break here, and of I course. actually want to jump back in and go back over that definition because I do think it's important. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, today's episode is being brought to you in part by Millennium and Amgen. We're talking about the Supreme Court ruling um, on the Affordable Care Act. Peter, um, before the break, we started to talk about, you know, are there folks who could fall through the cracks? Are there folks who won't qualify for the exchanges, who also won't qualify for Medicaid? What's, you know, who's still the group that we need to think about who is going to fall through the cracks here? Well, it all depends on what the states do. Um, there's about six or seven states that have given indications that they will not expand their Medicaid programs. And, you know, you've got to see why. I mean, these are states that sued the federal government um, to not expand Medicaid, to not be, to be compelled to, to expand Medicaid. So what are they going to say now after the decision comes out and gives them the option? Um, of course, they're going to say we're not going to expand Medicaid. But, in fact, many of those states um, and many of the states that even sued will wind up uh, expanding their Medicaid programs because the, the federal funding that flows to the states uh, as a result of expansion is just too much to say no to. I mean, it's a 100% federal funding for the first three years, and then it scales down to a, a no lower than 90% federal funding. So even, you know, seven or eight years out, the mm-hmm. state pays 10 cents, the federal government sends the state 90 cents uh, for every dollar spent on health care. That, that's, that's a very generous Medicaid structure, uh, much more generous than the current program. And the, the theory is that states in the end will not be able to say no to that. I mean, just look at Medicaid in 1965, mm-hmm. you know, and for the last state to join was Arizona in 1982, uh, the Children's Health Insurance Program in 1997. All 50 states are, are participating in both the S-CHIP or Children's Health Insurance Program and the Medicaid program. And, and it is kind of an assumption that all states will receive so much pressure from the hospitals and the other groups mm-hmm. in their state that they'll have to join in the end. If that's the case, then you won't have a huge sector of the Medicaid population below 100% of poverty level mm-hmm. in those states that don't have access. They will have access to Medicaid. It's the states, if they go, go forward, that choose not to expand where you're going to mm-hmm. have that coverage problem. And if I could interrupt, and the folks who that's really going to affect, because Medicaid today covers um, particularly children, people with disabilities, the elderly, um, you know, different groups in the low-income population. So the folks who'd be really affected if their state chooses not to do the expansion are going to be more um, adults who don't have children mm-hmm. in their families in particular. So they may be people who, in fact, do have a chronic illness or a disability but don't qualify um, in terms of Social Security disability to get coverage that way. And they are they're going without health insurance, um, or they may just be low-income workers who are going without health insurance. But that's where that's who's going to be most affected if that happens. Sure. I mean, we certainly, you know, hear stories of young, young single adults, uninsured adults who were diagnosed with cancer, you know, much below the average age, you know, mm-hmm. of a cancer diagnosis and, it, it, you know, out there literally on Facebook with friends, with family, trying to raise money to, you know, to pay for their cancer care. And uh, it really is heartbreaking. And I know, Karen, you also mentioned the um, illegal immigrant population, the undocumented immigrant population of which Peter estimates there are approximately 11 million who do not qualify to buy insurance through the exchanges and who do not qualify for Medicaid. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important to mention. You know, Peter, just as you started to bring back a little, bring a little bit of history into the conversation, and we know that President Johnson signed Medicaid and Medicare into law in 1965, but that all states didn't sign up for Medicaid immediately. In fact, um, I read that Arizona was one of the last to sign up in 1982, so it took 17 years uh, for the for the Medicaid benefits to be available in all all states um, in the country. You're saying that they're potentially now, even though it's a pretty sweet deal. For states, there could be some states who, on 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 political grounds and on their opposition to this bill, might not accept the Medicaid money. Peter. Well, they're saying that there's six or seven, including Texas and Florida, and Texas and Florida accounts for one fifth of the new Medicaid population that is expected to benefit from this law. One fifth. 
So if, if Florida and Texas alone don't uh, expand their Medicaid programs, there's going to be a, quite a, a large coverage gap, uh, and that kind of blows a bit of a hole through the whole Affordable Care Act. I, I, again, I think that a lot of this is kind of political um, in nature. I think mm-hmm. we need to wait until the election to see what mm-hmm. shakes out. Um, and in the end, uh, whether it's this year, next year, the year after that, not, well, I should say 2014 or years after, I just can't imagine that states are, go- are not going to be able to um, uh, you know, I don't think they'll be able to resist the pressure to ultimately, from within their own state, to cover the very people. Uh, ironically here, if you've got a state that doesn't choose to expand their Medicaid program, people still have to pay taxes. They're going to be spending, uh, paying taxes to the federal government that gets redistributed to states that choose to expand their coverage, but do not, it does not go back to the very states where those tax revenues are coming from. So, you know, it, it doesn't take too long for, for you know, the residents of, of states to see lots of people uninsured walking on the streets and them paying on average $1,000 out of their own pocket to cross-subsidize people that have no coverage and to not put pressure on the governor to ultimately accept this expansion. So we'll have to see where that well, I, I wouldn't, what, what would prevent is you just fleeing the state and going to a state that did accept the money? Nothing. They right. could move, and I think you would see um, you know, a fair amount of, of movement. If you've got the opportunity, if you've got a disability or a chronic condition and you can't qualify for Medicaid in your own state, I mean, that's a powerful incentive to move to a state that covers. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, also, say, you know, it's, um, I mean, health care is a big part of our economy, and I think that there will be a lot of pressure on state legislatures and on governors to think of, you know, the jobs that are tied to mm-hmm. the, the health care industry as well and how, um, you know, providing coverage to people largely on the federal dime, um, you know, kind of what the job impact of that is, too. So there's a lot of reasons for states to take a a close, hard look at whether it makes sense to expand or not, um, you know, once we're past the political season. Right, right. So, Karen, let's, we're, we're, we're unfortunately quickly getting to the end of the show here, but let me just go quickly. So, there, so it is, a, you know, we've, we've alluded to the fact that it is a presidential election year. There's a lot of talk from the Republicans that they will, uh, uh, they would like to repeal the Affordable Care Act as soon as they can if they win the White House, if they win the Senate. Can that be done, uh, Karen? And if so, do we just wind up back at square one? Um, well, you know, if the Republicans end up controlling the House and the Senate and the presidency, um, they, they have a lot of tools at their disposal. You know, certainly in terms of implementing the law, that's something that the, um, you know, the president and uh, the administration could then really slow down on to begin with. Um, and the legislative branch, you know, could repeal it. Uh, in the Senate, unless the Republicans had uh, 60 votes, it would take some maneuvering. But I think, um, you know, ultimately could get done is the I think the opinion of the experts around Senate procedure. Um, but you know, whether that takes us back to square one or not, I think that really depends. The you know maybe that the Republicans would be loath to repeal some of the popular pieces of the legislation, including mm-hmm. some of the ones we've talked about today, like lifetime limits or um, you know allowing the insurance reforms that ensure that people with cancer or other chronic diseases can't be turned down for health insurance. That's you know something that um, is really popular, and and they may choose that they, they might decide they can't go that route. Um, and, you know, we really haven't seen, they, they talk a lot about re, they would repeal and replace, but we haven't really seen what a replacement proposal would look like. So it's hard to know if we're back to square one or if we're at something like square three or, you know, <laughs> what that will end up looking like. Peter, a quick comment on that? Well, I guess I would take a slightly more aggressive posture with respect to the outcome of the election. I I think if President Obama is not elected, this is not a political point, it's just a reality. If he's not reelected, I I don't think there's a chance that this law goes into effect as is. Um, The the Republicans and the the nominee have made, or the presumptive nominee, I guess, Mm -hmm. have made such a campaign issue out of this that if Mm -hmm. they were to win and not repeal the law, whatever happens after that repeal, I think they'd be, you know, they'd be persona non grata Mm -hmm. with their own party. So, uh, you know, and even uh, if uh, it's an interesting question, now the Supreme Court has labeled this a tax, 
you know, the, it's a, and therefore it's constitutional. Well, that means that it can be uh, approved with 51 votes in the Senate rather than 60, a kind of a supermajority, which just yeah. makes it easier for the Senate to go ahead and, and pass that. There's some debate yeah. about that, but it, it, there's all kinds of speculation, but I, I think it's pretty clear that if uh, mm-hmm. Obama is not reelected, that um, this law this doesn't go into effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I just, I want to thank you both for uh, coming back on the show today. This hour just flew by for me. Um, a lot of a lot of great information, and uh, I really appreciate you guys helping us break this down. We will continue to monitor developments closely and share with our listeners everything that we learn and find out so that you can make the best decisions for you and your your family's health. Um, I, I'm pleased that you uh, all uh, joined us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Thibodeau, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. As mentioned earlier in the show, we provide a whole range of free support services for people with cancer and their families. We have 57 affiliates around the country, 100 satellite locations. We're online at cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support community.org.